Compassion and power. Rarely are compassion and power seen together, in my opinion. At least together in equal measure and perfect harmony. Think of any great story. The leading character might be a gentle and compassionate soul who maybe has a moment or two of unique and unusual power or strength. This is Bilbo Baggins, isn't it? This is Walter Mitty. On and on the list could go. Or the leading character might be a powerful, bold, courageous man, maybe even rough around the edges. But somewhere in the story, there's this moment or two of unusual compassion and gentleness. You didn't know he had it in him. This is any Clint Eastwood movie. It makes for good storytelling to not put compassion and power in a perfect mix in a story in one person. That flash of power and that glimpse of compassion stands out in contrast to the other. Or maybe we we write stories like that because we can't imagine one who is both fully compassionate and completely powerful at the same time. But Jesus was. Jesus of Nazareth was, and uniquely so. Turn with me to Mark 5 in your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you this morning. Mark chapter 5, where we get a glimpse of Jesus, compassionate and powerful. And surely that's what we need. We need a Savior, a hero, who is both fully compassionate and fully powerful. To have compassion without power, well, we'd have sympathy, but no rescue. To have power without compassion, well, we might have an indifferent rescuer or an impersonal one. In Mark 5, Jesus' compassion and power are the answer or hope for a few desperate people. Desperation is a major part of the story that we'll look at today in Mark 5. Jesus' power and compassion are perfect for people who are desperate. Mark 5, the second half, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked round to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he followed, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, 
And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Well, is this one story or two? It's kind of both, isn't it? Did you notice that? This is a classic Mark sandwich. That's even what scholars call it. A Markin sandwich. A sandwich of stories. He does this several times in his gospel account. One story begins, and then he moves to another story, and then comes back to the original and finishes that one. In this particular instance of Mark 5, the two stories really do make up one story. The events actually happened as a sandwich. It's not just that he wrote it this way. They happened as a sandwich. There's a a flow to it all. The sick woman interrupted the trip to Jairus' house where his daughter was sick. And then after the woman's healing, they get back to that journey to Jairus' house. There's a sandwich. But that's not the only reason that Mark gives us these story sandwiches. It's not just because it happened that way. It's also a literary device. The two stories are linked thematically. Sometimes they happen right next to each other. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes he puts them right next to each other in order to highlight this. He's sending a message that we're to look for parallels between these two things. We're to look for contrast that might be there in these two different stories or the characters therein. There's a message, a meaning in the stories being intermingled and sandwiched as they are. So watch for those similarities and contrasts as we work our way through the passage this morning. Let's start at the beginning with a desperate father. A desperate father. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus had crossed back over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Remember from last week, he was in Gentile country in the first half of Mark 5. There he encountered a man who was loaded up with demons. Well, now he's come back to the Jewish side of the lake. And that will become relevant later on. Tuck that away. But once again, as he comes to the shore, a great crowd surrounds Jesus. And from that crowd emerges, verse 22, one of the rulers of the synagogue. Being a ruler of the synagogue wasn't a full-time job, but it was respectable and important. It might be like a chairman of the elder board at a church who has an outside job, another job, a full-time job elsewhere. And yet his eldership work is, is important. His leadership in the church is, is really important. And in this context, this man would have been considered a, a leader in the community. A respected man. But this day, he is a desperate man. So respectability is not foremost in his thinking. He sees Jesus in verse 22, and he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Every person in this room can imagine something of what this man felt, something of the helplessness, the hopelessness, the anguish that this man felt. Every parent can imagine something of the desperation that this loving father felt. Our kids, by God's grace, have been quite healthy. Our biggest scare was when Autumn, our oldest, uh, was first born and she was in ICU for the first couple of days. First couple days of her existence outside the womb, we couldn't hold her really. She was in an incubator or some sort of plastic cage. I'm not sure exactly what it was called. I just know we couldn't get to her. She was in there being warmed up and fed with different needles and hoses and tubes and all that. 
We couldn't do anything but watch and pray. And of course, that's nothing compared to what some of you have had to deal with with your kids over the years. An illness that goes on for years and just continues to get worse, mysteriously so. Some of you have had to watch a daughter or son come to the point of death and transcend it. You, more than the rest of us, know exactly what was in the heart and mind of Jairus. And so, he hears that Jesus is in town. Right at the same time, almost, that his daughter is on the brink. He hears that Jesus is showing up. He's no doubt heard about Jesus' healings elsewhere. Everyone had. That's why there's a crowd assembled, ready, ready to welcome Jesus and see what he'll do next. And so this desperate father leaves his daughter's deathbed, probably in a sprint, right towards Jesus, sees him, falls down before him, and begs him, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And Jesus came. He came. Verse 24 just says, and he went with him. There's hope. But Jairus is a desperate father whose plan is interrupted. His plan is to get Jesus back to his house for his daughter's healing. It looks hopeful, but his plan is interrupted. The great crowd continues to follow around Jesus and envelop Jesus, no doubt. And from that crowd, a sick woman seeks her own healing from Jesus. As we read already, her healing and the ensuing conversation that Jesus has with her after her healing will mean a delay for Jairus and his daughter. And a costly delay. The story comes back to that. But in verse 25, the spotlight turns directly to this woman in the crowd who's slinking behind Jesus. Secondly, a desperate woman. There's a desperate father and then a desperate woman. An unnamed woman in the story, unlike Jairus, one of the few names we get in the Gospel of Mark. This unnamed woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years. No doubt this is something like an unending menstruation for 12 years. Verse 26 says, she had suffered much. And not only suffered from the disease, no doubt that's true, but from the treatments. It says she suffered much under many physicians. And she had spent all she had. And the result, she was no better, but rather grew worse. Not just she was worse, she's growing worse, she's getting worse. She's leaking blood, it's getting worse. She's going to die. She's desperate. She too, like Jairus and his daughter, she's helpless. In fact, it's worse than you might think with this woman. According to Old Testament law, she was considered ceremonially unclean because of her issue of blood. She could pass this this uncleanness onto others. If she touched anyone, they became unclean. If they touched her, they, become, they became unclean. If anyone sat where she just sat, they would become unclean until they went through a ritual purification. She was really an outcast from society, maybe even her family, maybe even from a husband. She must keep a safe distance from everyone or be in danger of legal prosecution. She couldn't enter a tabernacle for worship, let alone the courts of the temple for prayer or for sacrifice. She suffers. She suffers greatly. She suffers physically. She suffers socially. She suffers emotionally. And she suffers religiously. And yet she has a bold faith. She has a bold faith, doesn't she? Well, it's kind of bold. It's kind of mixed, isn't it? Unlike Jairus, who came to Jesus head on, this woman, verse 27, came up behind him. She sneaks. 
But it is quite a faith that says, verse 28, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This might be some kind of superstition. If I touch that guy's cloak, I'll get blessing from him. Like there's a power to be had that flows through his body and through his stuff. But I don't think this is superstition. I think this is faith. Even if it's misguided faith. She's got such great faith. She says, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. She's a desperate woman. And she is healed. She's a desperate woman who is healed. Verse 29 tells us. Upon touching his garment, immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. What desperation What faith and what power in Jesus? What power in this Jesus? It's not his cloak that has the power. It's not some sort of Harry Potter cloak that's magical. It's her faith that's the difference between her touching Jesus and something happening and everyone else around Jesus who's no doubt touching him as well. But it's not her faith that heals. It's not her faith that's powerful. It is Jesus who heals. It is Jesus who's powerful. And he knows what happened. He perceived that power had gone out from him, verse 30 says. That's strange. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where it speaks like that about power going out of Jesus like this. It surely doesn't mean that Jesus became weak or drained like Superman when he has kryptonite around his neck. Or like when I played the Mike Tyson game on Nintendo when I was a kid. You'd punch Mike Tyson and if you did too many punches you got real weak and then you'd sort of and you were vulnerable until you sort of recharged your batteries a little bit then you could go after Mike Tyson again. That's not what's happening here. We don't know what it means, but apparently Jesus felt something. He knew something happened. And not just something, he knew exactly what happened. He knew exactly who this was. He knew exactly what her problem was and what got fixed and and what's going on here. And yet he asks the question, who touched my garments? He asks that not because he doesn't know. He's God. His question is for her. Like God calling Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Oh, he can find you. He wants you to show up. She had hoped to get a quick healing and then anonymously slip into the background without anyone noticing. But Jesus won't let that happen. He could have let that happen. He could have let this be a private matter. He could have let the power go out, hmm, smile to himself, look back with a wink, thought to himself, you're welcome, lady. Another one. And then just kept it to himself and kept on going to Jairus' house on schedule, no less. But he didn't. Why? She wanted healing, but he wanted to reveal himself to her. She wanted the power. Jesus is making sure that this is something more personal. She wanted to remain anonymous. But Jesus wants to show her compassion. He said, who touched my garments? And the disciples are incredulous. Jesus' question seems ridiculous in light of the swarm of people that are around him. And so they say in verse 31, you see the crowd pressing around you and you say, who touched me? Isn't who didn't touch me a better question here? I mean, this is like being in a mosh pit and saying, someone touched me. You know, this is like a a rock star jumping into the crowd and crowd surfing, being passed back and say, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Someone touched my shirt. Who was it? Really? Really? Nevertheless, he looked around to see who had done it. Verse 32. He looked around to see who had done it, and he waited. It doesn't say so, but you, you get that feeling here. 
He waited. He, he could have pointed her out to everyone in the crowd, but he didn't. He waits. He wants her to respond. You get the feeling that this may have been a more drawn-out scene than just what Mark records. Remember, he records things with a lot of brevity. In any given story in the Bible, certainly more could have been recorded than what was recorded. I think this is certainly one of them. This is probably taking a little bit longer than just how long it takes to read it. And it's right about here that we should remember Jairus. Don't forget about Jairus. It says nothing about Jairus here, but he's there. Desperate Jairus with a dying daughter at the point of death. There's no time to waste. He had to get Jesus to the daughter. She was about to die. And then there's delay. There's Jesus trying to figure out who touched him in a crowd. Even if he knows this woman or knows that she's sick, her death isn't imminent like his little girl's death is. You can imagine Jairus' restlessness about this time. There'd be a temptation probably to fret, to fear, to be frustrated, maybe even to be angry at Jesus. Again, the story will come back to Jairus, but don't forget about him here in the middle of this scene. Back to the woman. She was desperate. She was healed. But now she's afraid after being healed. Verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Is she afraid because she shouldn't have been in the middle of a crowd in the first place? Is she afraid because she's ceremonially unclean? She can't touch people and she just touched a rabbi? And purposely so, not accidentally. She planned to. Maybe she expects a scolding from Jesus. Maybe she expects being turned over to the authorities. Or maybe she's surprised, I'm sorry, afraid for another reason. In fact, Mark tells us so. Verse 33, look at it again. Knowing what had happened to her, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. She may have feared rebuke from Jesus or public scorn from the crowd or punishment from the authorities, but what she feared the most was what happened to her. She got what she actually hoped for. She went hoping for healing. She got healing. And when it actually happened, simply by touching his cloak, she trembled at the thought of who this really is and what this really means. What power. It's like the disciples at the end of chapter 4 who were in a storm at sea in a boat, fearing for their lives. And in terror, they asked Jesus, don't you care that we're dying? And after he hushed the wind and calmed the raging sea, it says, verse 41, they were filled with great fear and said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? It's like the garrison people in chapter 5 we saw last week. They were terrified by and helpless against this man who was possessed by a legion of demons. But when Jesus cast out these demons, freed this man, restored him, and when they saw this man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. More afraid. This woman too. She's helped. She's rescued. She's healed. And she's trembling at what this means and who this is. She's afraid but then she's blessed. She's a woman who's blessed and blessed by Jesus, no less. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus is all-powerful, and he's compassionate. He's kind, he's gentle. And look at these phrases here in what he says to her. Your faith, your belief, your trust, your confidence in me. It has made you well. Literally, in the original, it's, it has saved you. Of course, the saving that's happened here is a physical saving thus far. 
And that happens sometimes in the gospel account. Salvation is a word that's used for healings. And it reminds us, those of us who know more than just what happened here in Mark 5, we know more of the story, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. When we hear salvation, we know that's more than just physical healing. In fact, it first starts with a spiritual healing. It starts with forgiveness and reconciliation. and eventually leads to a physical healing one day in a new heaven and a new earth. This is all an illustration of the gospel. In a sense, every healing or every miracle that Jesus does in the gospel accounts is a reminder, it's a window, a picture of what we need spiritually. What we are spiritually, we're blind, we're helpless, we're bleeding, we're dead on the inside. And his healing is what he gives. He heals, he, he, he gives sight, he, he, he gives life, he opens up. Just saved you. So go in peace. Go in peace. That's not just a, a goodbye salutation. That's a blessing. It's not just peace like, hope it goes well for you in the rest of your life. Have peace in your heart today. Peace out. It's not that. It's not any of those. Peace is the Old Testament Jewish idea of peace. It's shalom. It's wholeness. It's completeness, it's security, it's happiness, it's safety, it's friendship. This woman's not just healed. She's commended and she's restored. She's blessed. All this is such a happy scene. We hate to leave it. But just as this happy scene draws to a close, actually even before it draws to a close, Jairus gets the dreaded news. Verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking to that woman, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Thirdly, a dead daughter. A dead daughter. It was a desperate father and a desperate woman and now a dead daughter. You can feel the despair, the utter helplessness and hopelessness of these friends or messengers who come to Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? There's nothing he can do now. He's a good teacher. We all know that. He's a miracle worker. Okay. He's healed some, sure. But she's dead now. It's too late. If only he had come sooner. Jesus overhears this, but he ignores it and really just focuses on Jairus and, and bolstering his faith. Verse 36, five beautiful, pregnant words. Do not fear, only believe. And those beautiful, do not fear, only believe. They're beautiful and yet they're otherworldly. Jairus' daughter is dead. The resurrection of Christ hasn't happened yet. The resuscitation of Lazarus hasn't happened yet in the story. There's no reason for him to think necessarily that Jesus can raise the dead, can he? Don't fear. Just believe. And we're not told what Jairus believed or how much he believed, but he believed enough that he didn't take the advice of his stupid friends, but he took Jesus straight to the house. No doubt, a far way off from the house, they can hear the mourning. In this culture, they mourned well, loudly. She's a dead daughter who is mourned. They hear, verse 38, a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. These were actually professional wailers. And not whalers with an H. The other kind of whalers, criers, mourners. It's weird to us, but in their culture, this is how you grieved and how you honored the dead. Even poor families in this day were expected to hire at least two mourners and possibly a flutist or flautist. Why? 
Well, it's just a different culture than ours. We, we hire musicians at family funerals, don't we? We might hire someone to lead in, in music or singing. This was someone who would, or people who would, lead in mourning, lead in grief. And they intended to get it all out as much as they could right there and then. Jesus says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? Verse 39, he says, the child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Of course, she is indeed dead. These are people who are professional mourners. They work at a funeral home. They know about dead people. They know what a dead person looks like. They've seen people die. They know what that last breath looks like. She is indeed dead. Jesus talks like this other times where he says, someone who's dead, oh, they're just asleep. Lazarus, he was four days in the tomb and he was already stinking. And Jesus said, oh, he's just sleeping. Why? Well, he's sending a message they don't quite get yet, but we do. That death does not have a final say. Her death is not final. With Jesus' touch, death is not final. It's like a nap. Of course, the mourners, probably the parents as well, don't get it. So they're wailing. Their mourning is instantly turned into laughing and mockery. But she's sleeping, and so she's resurrected. She's a daughter who is resurrected. Verse 41 says, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha kumi, this is Aramaic. Jesus and his disciples spoke Aramaic most of the time, and yet the New Testament is written in Greek most of the time. There isn't much in the New Testament that is Aramaic. It's unusual. This is left in Aramaic here. No doubt reminding us that these are eyewitness accounts. Peter, James, and John saw this. They later told Mark. And it's still ringing in their ears years later. His voice, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, or even little lamb. That's what Talitha means in Aramaic. It's a diminutive. It's gentle, it's compassionate, it's fatherly. And even this command, come or arise, that sounds all resurrection-y to us, maybe. It sounds lofty, like Jesus said, come forth or arise. And maybe he did that with Lazarus. You'd say that to a man. But this is a 12-year-old girl, and this is a common word used like when a parent would wake a child up in the morning. It's time to get up. Talitha, it's time to get up, sweetheart. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. She's resurrected. Or maybe we want to leave that word resurrected for Jesus. This isn't the same thing as what Jesus did and got. He got a whole new body and he lives forevermore. This girl will again die. Like Lazarus, like others. She's resuscitated, we might say. But she was dead, and now she is alive. But this is concealed. She's a girl who is concealed. At least least her resurrection is concealed by Jesus. He strictly charged them that no one should know this, verse 43 says. No one should know this? Seems like everyone should know this. But in fact, there are several layers of secrecy in this story. In verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John. Nine out of the 12 disciples didn't get to see this. Verse 40, he put all the mourners outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in. And then, verse 43, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Why? Why keep this marvelous miracle a secret? After all, this is very different than what Jesus did in the last story we looked at last week in Mark 5. Remember the man who was freed from the legion of demons? That story ended with verse 19. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much he's had mercy on you. And the next verse says, the man went through ten cities telling everyone 
what had happened and who Jesus was. But that was in Gentile land. Remember the whole thing of crossing the lake? That was in Gentile land. There, Jesus says, tell. Go ahead, tell it. Shout it from the rooftops. But back in Jewish territory, with Jewish people, Jesus is more secretive, at least for now. For a few reasons I'll remind you of. These people may start to see Jesus as their Messiah, the long-awaited one, but have a very wrong idea of what kind of Messiah he's supposed to be. Secondly, the events could too quickly lead to the cross. If Jesus' identity, his titles, his purpose, his kingship get talked about too much, well, then there's going to be opposition from Jews and from Romans, and the cross will come sooner than it's supposed to. He's got a timeline. Thirdly, it's possible that these people could focus on the miracle, but not his real identity. They could get so worked up in the power that they forget the person. And lastly, Jesus is secretive with them here, at least for now, because they don't yet understand what Talitha's resurrection means. It doesn't just mean Jesus is nice or that Jesus has power. It points to something, doesn't it? This reminds us that Jesus has power over death. This is the giver of Life. This is the one who will be raised from the dead. By chapter 8, he'll start talking about that. You think I'm the Messiah? I'm a crucified, risen Messiah. You okay with that, Peter? Oh, you're not. Okay. Well, then chapter 9, he reminds them all again. I'm going to die and be raised in the third day. They don't get that one either. So he repeats it again in chapter 10. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to crucify me. And I'll be raised in the third day. And that's what happened. That's what happened. And we get just a glimpse of it. For those of us who know the rest of the story, we get just a glimpse of it in Lazarus's resuscitation and in Talitha's resuscitation. They don't get what Talitha's resurrection means yet. But we do. And Talitha is a girl who is fed. She's not just resurrected. And this thing is not just concealed, but a curious ending, isn't it? Verse 43, she is fed. He told them to give her something to eat. Why mention this? It seems insignificant, inconsequential. And yet Mark doesn't use any throwaway sentences. He writes with an economy of words. This is here for a purpose. One thing it shows us is that this is an eyewitness account, just like Talitha Kumi in Aramaic. It has the ring of eyewitness about it. So here, why include this? It was significant. She's walking around, and Jesus apparently is about to walk out, and he goes, and get her something to eat. And he goes on. That's the end of the story. I mean, you have a feeling that Peter, James, and John went, that's weird. That's something. we got to tell Mark about this someday. He's going to write it down for us. But it also proved that she was fully healed when he said, give her something to eat. Sick people don't eat. When people start to get better, they get an appetite. It's always a good sign when someone says, I'm starving. Would you go give me a cheeseburger or something? That's what I think of when I'm finally better after being sick. Give me a cheeseburger, a big one. And it also proved that she was not some sort of ethereal spirit being that was now walking around. This was no ghost. And that's kind of important. This is a physical being just like Jesus was after his resurrection. Remember when he showed up to the disciples? One of the first things he said as he showed up in that room after the resurrection is, do you have anything to eat? Luke 24 records that. And it says, and they gave him some fish. He eats. He has a body. Now, lastly, what we need to do is consider a growing question that It's looming, but it's even growing as these stories unfold in the gospel according to Mark. The question is this, who then is this? It's a growing question. Remember in Mark 4, after the the calming of the storm, Jesus said, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
And apparently they don't yet have faith because they've responded to that by, by having great fear and saying to one another, who then is this that the waves and the sea obey him? Now remember, if you've been with us in recent weeks, that the two miracles we're looking at today in chapter 5 are really part of a string of miracles that go together at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5. There are four miracles that are all related and important. Each one is a scene of desperation and helplessness. So in chapter 4, verse 35 and following, you have the disciples in the stormy sea, tossed to and fro, sure they're going to die, sure of their death. They're helpless. They're hopeless. In chapter 5, verse 1, there's the demon-crazed man who himself is hopeless and helpless. And, and so are the townspeople. They can't restrain him. Chapter 5, verse 25 and following, there's the bleeding woman who's alone, unlike Talitha. She has no one to intercede for her, no one to go get Jesus for. She's desperate. And in chapter 5, verse 35 and following, you don't get more desperate than death, a dead daughter and a helpless father. And yet each has a powerful, redemptive outcome that exalts Jesus and answers the question who this is and what does it mean? What's he up to? How do we respond? Let us believe, let us not be afraid. There's a great storm that leads to a great calm. There's a chaotic man who's a calmed, insane, well-dressed man. There's a relentless disease and then healing and peace. There's sure death and then new life. Each has a struggle with fear and with faith. Each of these miracle stories has a struggle within it of fear and faith. So just as Jesus said to the disciples in the boat, why are you afraid? Do you not believe? They are a slight rebuke. With Jairus in verse 36 of chapter 5, slightly more gentle, do not fear, only believe. You have all kinds of people in these four miracle stories. You have Jews and Gentiles, men, women, a child, you have outcasts and noble, poor and wealthy, sick and able. All kinds of people and all kinds of problems. You have disaster on the sea. You have demons. You have disease. And you have death. And there's one solution for them all. Jesus. He's the one solution for all the problems, for all the people. For demons, for disaster, for disease and death, for every man and woman and child. We see his power over all these things. He reigns. He's bringing in a kingdom. A kingdom that reigns over disaster and reigns over demon and Satan. Demons and Satan. Reigns over disease. Reigns over death. And we don't yet see that in its fullness. We will one day, though. It's as good as done. Jesus has power over disaster and demons and disease and death. We don't yet see it. But one day we will. He is this world's Savior. He is this world's. He's the Savior of this mankind. He's no traveling hospital. He's no doctor with a bag doing the best he can and bandaging up and then going on his way. He's no magician looking to impress. He is no conjurer of cheap tricks. Do you remember that line from Lord of the Rings? Gandalf says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me as some sort of conjurer of cheap tricks. I wish I could grow as I did that. I wish I had long, flowing white hair. Remember that? Do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. Jesus is no huckster of cheap tricks. He's the world's savior and king. He's God in the flesh. 
and he's good. He's infinitely powerful and he's breathtakingly kind and compassionate and gentle. He's one who says, little girl, it's time to wake up. Someone get her some food. That's our Jesus. So know who this is. Don't just ask the question, who then is this? Hopefully you are starting to see who this is. Maybe instead it's a powerful conclusion. You see, for those in the story, this is a growing question. They're amazed. And their amazement, well, it's not clear whether it's amazement belief and amazement worship or amazement, what the, what, what? Real? What's going on? They're amazed. Hopefully for you it's not a growing question, but a powerful conclusion who this is. Faith is such a big part of the story. Believe. Have faith. The woman's faith is commended. Have you ever thought about this? Faith is a conclusion. Faith is a conclusion. Faith is not vague religiosity like people use the word faith today oh he's got faith oh yeah that other guy buddhist guy he's got faith hindu guy yeah work hindu guy he's got faith faith is not just positive thinking faith is not just positive thinking in jesus faith is not something you try your darndest to muster up and make sure you aim it in jesus's direction Faith is seeing Jesus aright and locking on to him for all eternity, for everything. It's putting all your eggs into the Jesus basket. And faith springs from an awareness of your own helplessness. It has a similar desperation to the desperation that we find in Jairus and this woman who's bleeding to death. You see, remember, these are windows into what we need spiritually do you find yourself spiritually speaking to be desperate and helpless like this man was with his daughter like this woman was with her blood and like the daughter was with death do you find yourself to be dying or dead spiritually speaking This is what we need. We need Jesus. We need nothing less than his healing touch on our souls. We need nothing less than his resurrection life in our hearts. And we need to know that he came for something greater than even healing and resuscitation. As great as that is in this story. Healing and resuscitation is so great and glorious in this story. It's just what they asked for and just what they need. And yet Jesus came for more than what we see here in Mark 5, we must remember these were temporary healings. There's no girl named Talitha in Jerusalem these days walking around who Jesus healed 2,000 years ago or so. There's no Jairus. There's no Jairus' daughter. There's no woman with the issue of blood who's still telling that story on the ground in Jerusalem these days. They died. They died. They died. Your healing is not your final hope. Your temporary rescue is not your final hope. God's provision for you financially is not your final hope. Peter tells us that we're to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed at the coming of Jesus. And so, Christian, we remind ourselves, death is not the boss. Jesus is. Even if we die, We die to be with him. We remember 1 Corinthians 15 that death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, I know death feels like it stings. And yet Paul is right to ask that rhetorical question, come on, what can it do? For the Christian, what can it do? But remind us of that day that has been promised. In Isaiah 25, it was promised a day when he will swallow up death forever. He will swallow it up, ugly as it is. 
Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the new heaven and the new earth. That's what's coming for us if we believe Christ and we trust in him for our sins. And for us, every trial and every heartache that we go through in the meantime is one, a reminder of our weakness and our helplessness, our frailty. And it's also a reminder of what's to come. We're not home yet. But it's also a reminder, painful as they might be, the reminders of what is sure. Because Jesus is sure, because he did rise from the dead. We put all our eggs in that one basket and believe he will raise us with him too one day. We're going to sing this song as we close. Listen to this. Come behold the wondrous mystery slain by death, the God of life, but no grave could ever restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power, resurrected as we will be when he comes. Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us this glorious resurrection hope and may it abound and spread here this morning. Lord Jesus, as you promised to build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it, we pray you'd build it larger here this morning, build it stronger here this morning, add to it, we pray, those who aren't yet sure whether their sins are forgiven, we pray they would come to know you. We pray it would start with them recognizing their need and feeling their helplessness and in desperation finding you as all they need. Lord, we pray as Christians, you'd cause us to ponder and and wonder often to behold the wondrous mystery of Christ in the flesh dying for our sins, raised on the third day and coming again in glory. Help us, Lord, to think often on you and your ways and your teaching and your glory as a personal Savior, Lord. Help us to commune with you often. Help us now to preach to ourselves and to each other about this wondrous mystery and to commune with you, Lord Jesus, as we do so, as we reflect on your truth and what you've done and what you will do for your namesake.